Habakkuk chapter 1, starting from verse 1. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them, he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And I'm going to pray as we begin. Lord, we thank you very much for this chance to look at a new part of your word this evening for the next um, couple of Sunday evenings. We pray that you would show us wonderful things out of it and shape us and change us. Pray that you'd meet us each um, individually and also as a church family together. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, for me, it's a genius piece of sports marketing that the referees in football and rugby are sponsored by Specsavers Opticians. Because um, it's what fans shout all the time, isn't it? Oi, ref, are you blind? You didn't see that. It's very unjust when the person in authority seems not to see a wrong that's been committed and nothing is done as a result. And of course, beyond the world of sports, the same idea becomes a lot more serious, doesn't it? What if it's 
The police, who seem oblivious to what's going on. A burglary is reported, but they don't do anything about it. What a sense of injustice there would be. Or if a judge, after hearing all the evidence of crimes committed, just sent everyone home and nothing was ever done. Why don't you do something? Can't you see what's happened? And of course, at an even higher level, the same question is often asked of God. Why doesn't he do something? Can't he see what's going on? It could be something in in personal circumstances that is just not right. Or as we look out at events in the world, see greed, fraud, wars of aggression. Why doesn't God do anything about it? Can't he see what's going on? Well, it's this feeling of injustice that we start with in the book of Habakkuk in chapter 1, verse 2. We'll be looking at this over the next few weeks. And have a look down, please, at verse 2. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear, or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you look idly at wrong? Habakkuk is not unusual for asking this question, but what is unusual is the fact that he gets an answer. Because as a prophet in Israel, he had like dialogue with God, and that's what we have recorded in this book. This evening, we'll see Habakkuk's first complaint, and then we'll see the Lord's first answer, and then we'll see Habakkuk's second complaint. And then next week, In chapter 2, we'll see another answer from God. And then in chapter 3, the final final, um, week looking at it is a song or a prayer that Habakkuk prays to sum up how he's feeling, where he's got to by the end of the book. And what we'll see is how, over the course of the book, Habakkuk shifts from his burning question in chapter 1, verse 2, through to a place in chapter 3 where he can say, Yet I will quietly wait. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. It's like a a journey, a trajectory that Habakkuk goes on as he speaks and listens to God. And it's a journey that we can join him on. Now, it may be that you're here this evening and chapter 1, verse 2 is well and truly how you're feeling. You are very conscious of injustice and it hurts It might be that you're here investigating Christian things, and this is one of the things that stops you putting your trust in God. Why doesn't he do something about all the injustice? Well, this is a book to help you travel with Habakkuk to a place where you can say, I will wait, I will rejoice. Maybe chapter 1, verse 2 is not where you are personally this evening. I guess the chances are it might be one day. Or at the very least, you will be called upon to walk alongside brothers and sisters who are feeling that way. So whoever we are, it's a journey that we can join the prophet on through the weeks in this book. And in order to, in order to do that, we're going to look at um, kind of um, two different things. And if you've got the order of service, you'll see there are two parts to it. First, we're just going to look through the first three steps of the dialogue. And then we're going to draw some lessons from what Habakkuk uh, has, has seen so far. Um, so, starting off then, let's look at Habakkuk's first complaint. This is verses 2 to 4, where the prophet is basically asking, how long will you do nothing about the evil 
of your people. How long will you do nothing about the evil of your people? Have a look down again and read with me, please. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear, or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice never, sorry, so justice goes forth perverted. Habakkuk was a prophet in Judah. That's the southern part of what had been Israel. He was almost certainly based in the capital city of Jerusalem. And the year would be about 600 B.C., And it's not a great time for God's people. Regional superpowers were threatening them. Israel, the northern part of the kingdom, had just been defeated by the Assyrians, that their people had been attacked and taken off into exile. Southern kingdom of Judah is independent still, but they're really under pressure. They're on very thin ice. And also spiritually, this was not a good time for God's people. They were not trusting in the Lord or listening to his law or obeying him. Habakkuk was a prophet, and there are signs later on in the book that he maybe worked in the temple in Jerusalem. So he he would have had some sort of public ministry speaking and teaching the people, calling them back to listen to God. But that's not what we have here. We don't have his words to the people. What we have instead in the first part is his complaints about the people as he prays to God. His basic point is really clear. Habakkuk is, is conscious of the wrong the injustice in Judah. Twice he talks about the violence that he sees around him, verse 2 and verse 3. God's people are abusing and mistreating each other. He doesn't give particular examples, but the other parts of the Bible that address the same point in Israel's history especially talk about the leadership, the failure of leadership, that the the leaders and kings were all looking after their own interests. On the international stage, they were engaged in shady diplomacy, faithless diplomacy. And at home, they were looking after their own interests instead of looking after the people. All in all, uh, it felt like God's law was paralyzed, verse 4. No one was listening and nothing was happening. And so Habakkuk cries out, how long will you do nothing about the evil of your people? Can't you see what's going on? Now, before we move on, it's important that we note that this is often a right way to feel. Habakkuk was realistic about the state of things around him. And maybe it's how we should feel more than we do. If we had our eyes open, if we were less acclimatized or desensitized. As Jesus would one day say, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's very much the spirit of Habakkuk's first complaint. And then he gets an answer, his first answer in verses 5 to 11 as the Lord speaks. And he says to Habakkuk, I am already at work to bring the Babylonians as judgment against Judah. Please follow that with me from verse 5. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that's another name for the Babylonians, 
that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth and sees dwellings not their own. God says that he knows all about the violence in Judah, and he is already at work to punish them. If you look at verse 5, notice it's in the present tense. God says, I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. So miles away from Judah, and some years before Habakkuk had even opened his mouth in complaints, the Babylonians were being raised up by the Lord as a judgment against his people. They were becoming the top power in the region, overtaking the Assyrians. And one day, they would bring their fearful army and crush Judah in judgment. This is God's first answer. He does see the injustice among God's people, and he is doing something about it, bringing the Babylonians against them. Which leads to Habakkuk's second complaint, which is basically what? How is that a solution, God? That's what we see in verse 12 through to the start of chapter 2. How can you tolerate the violence and the pride of the Babylonians? I remember when I was little and I had a cough, my parents had this black medicine that was just disgusting, like really bad. You could barely keep it down. And I remember thinking, Maybe I'd just rather have a cough. The the remedy was much worse than the problem. Or we sometimes say that, and I don't know whether this is something that other people say or whether it's just my family being particularly unsympathetic, but if a child has got a sore finger, you say, oh, we can always chop it off. Um, Well, that's how it feels to Habakkuk. You're bringing the Babylonians to sort out the violence and the injustice. Surely that is even worse. They are so violent. You say it yourself in verse 8. They're as fierce as wild beasts. And they're so arrogant, God. You said it yourself in verse 11 that their own might is their God. This is what Habakkuk means in the imagery of verses 14 to 17 when he compares the Babylonians to fishermen who ruthlessly catch more and more and more in their net. But it's a catch of human beings. And then they worship their net, their violence as the thing that brings them victory and wealth. Habakkuk can't understand. He can't understand what God has said because of what he knows about the Lord. Have a look down at at, um, verse 12, please. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? In other words, how can you, the God of perfect purity, the one who has made promises to keep us as your people, how can you bring the Babylonians against us with all of their violence and all of their pride? Habakkuk just can't understand God's answer. Surely the remedy is worse than the problem. But notice, though, from his example, when he feels shocked or confused or angry about something that God has said, what does he do? Habakkuk speaks to God in prayer. He tells God how he's feeling. And on our way through, that is an important thing to learn from Habakkuk's example. When he's confused and hurting, he speaks to God about it. He doesn't bottle up his doubts. 
He doesn't go first to other people and express his consternation at what God has said. He goes to God and is real with him in prayer. I think a lot of the time for us, our prayer can become quite kind of surface level, can't it? I know that's true for me. But really, we, we can be honest with him. He already knows how we're feeling after all. And so as we see the prophet's example here, it's helpful to ask, when did our prayer time last feel like we were genuinely pouring out our heart to the Lord? That's a, a good thing to do. Well, that's what Habakkuk's second complaint is like. Surely not God. How can you tolerate the Babylonians with all their violence and their pride? And that's as far as we're going to go tonight. I'm sorry if you're enjoying it. We're going to stop there and you've got to come back for chapters two and three. Um, but as we pause, and inevitably we won't get all the answers this evening because we're stopping halfway. Let's draw out three lessons that Habakkuk learned as he went on his journey from chapter 1, verse 2, through to the end, when he can say, I will wait, I will rejoice. Three lessons that the prophet is learning. Number one, the Lord does feel the outrage of injustice. At the start of the book, it really felt to Habakkuk like he cared about injustice, but God did not. Twice, he accuses God of standing, sorry, of standing idly by as if God was just sitting there, inactive and indifferent. But that was not true. God did see, and he did care, and he was doing something about it. And that's a lesson for us, isn't it? When we feel the horror of injustice around us, or in our city, or in the news, do not think that God does not see those things. Do not think that God does not care. Because one day God has promised that he will act to bring perfect justice. Just like he would bring the Babylonians one day for a reckoning with Judah, so he will bring back the Lord Jesus one day for a reckoning with all people, fully and finally. In Acts 17, the Apostle Paul could say that God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. God has set a day. He cares deeply about injustice. And isn't that great news in a world where justice so often seems to go by the wayside? Where there are people, it seems, who can do what they like. It could be people in Edinburgh, pointy elbows, trampling others to get ahead in work, exploiting others. Or think about, as Catherine was praying, the situation in Ukraine so unjust. I don't claim to know very much about it, but I find it hard to believe that the leaders who have caused all this misery for so many people are really being greatly affected and punished by the sanctions. I don't know. I find that hard to believe personally. Or soldiers who have been accused of rape and war crimes, and they're being tried, but almost all tried in absentia. And there will probably never, will there, be any actual penalty. Well, oh yes, there will, because God sees, and he cares, and he says that he will bring justice. Maybe you're here and you're not yet sure what you think about this Christian teaching. Well, let me ask, have you faced up to what it would mean for the world if this isn't true, 
if there isn't a God who cares about injustice and if there won't be a day of final reckoning, what a bleak, bleak place this world becomes. It is good news that there is a God who feels the outrage of injustice. And actually, it's important as we're looking at this that we remember Habakkuk's first complaint was not so much about the evil out there, but the evil in here. He was talking, wasn't he, about God's people. And so I guess we have to think as well, don't we, about um, abuse or exploitation in churches. We might think of how God's law is, is being paralyzed by leaders who pass off their own ideas instead of simply explaining what the Bible says. Doesn't God see all that? Doesn't he care? Of course he does. And we need to look at ourselves, don't we, here at home, the way that we treat one another, the way that we show our love and care for each other, whether leadership is exercised for people's good. Please don't think God doesn't see and care about all this. He doesn't miss a single thing. The Lord does feel the outrage of injustice. That's lesson number one. Lesson number two. The Lord's timing is very different to ours. His timing is different to ours. Habakkuk could see injustice all around him, and apparently God doing nothing about it. And so, verse 2, he asks a question about time. Oh Lord, how long? Habakkuk wants something to happen now, or at least soon, or at least on a specified time scale. But look what God says in verse 5. He says, as we saw, he's already doing something. He was already raising up the Babylonians to bring his justice. And that wasn't something that happened overnight. He's talking about a shift in international relations that would have happened over not just years, but tens of years. If I could illustrate it as a kind of a crude minimum, there was 26 years between the year when the Babylonians overtook the Assyrian um, kind of main centers and became the top power, 26 years between that and when they reached Jerusalem. And I guess the question is, if that's God's sort of timescale, how many of us have a 26-year plan? Well, I'm pretty sure what I'm doing tomorrow, um, and actually I'm, I'm on holiday now, and um, Kath and I got a few things booked in over the next few weeks, pretty well mapped out. And while I'm on holiday, I've been having a bit of a think looking forward. I've put some meeting dates for the new academic year into my diary. Uh, I've got some stuff planned out for my new class after the summer. I'm feeling pretty organized. But please don't ask me about 2048 in 26 years' time. Because I, I don't know. That's not the kind of timescale I operate on. God's timescale is very different to ours. As Habakkuk says in verse 12, he is from everlasting. His sense of time is not like ours. And that was something that Habakkuk needed to learn. In our passage, we just get a hint of him learning this lesson. We'll see more about this. I don't want to um, cheat and, and kind of jump into chapters 2 and 3. But at the end of our passage, we get a hint that he, he's beginning to think this way. Um, have a look at chapter 2, verse 1, please. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out and see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. At the end of his second complaint, he's setting himself up to watch and to wait, isn't he? 
And that is very much the mindset, the posture that he's learning as he heads towards chapter 3, verse 16, when he says and feels much more fully, yet I will quietly wait. Now, of course, waiting isn't easy. Uh, When you're on hold on a phone call, it's infuriating, or, or waiting for a parcel that hasn't come, or I guess for some of us, waiting for exam results this summer, or if you're more seriously waiting for treatment on a medical waiting list, or waiting to get back home again, you don't know when that will be possible. But even though it's hard for us, Habakkuk is showing us that we need to learn to wait for God. It's not that he doesn't see. It's not that he won't act. But wait for him. Listen to those words again from Acts as the New Testament picks this up. God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has set a day. It's not that God doesn't see It's not that he won't act, but just wait for him. And again, we can learn from Habakkuk's example. The Lord doesn't seem to mind Habakkuk's impatience, if I can put it like that. His complaining a little bit. Oh Lord, how long? It can be healthy to express that honestly to God. But then we have to leave it with him. And like Jesus prayed, and like we sang, your will be done. We leave it with him. We trust him. And we wait because his timing is different to ours. That's the second lesson that the prophet's learning. And then finally, the Lord's way of working will surprise us. Remember how crazy God's first answer seemed to Habakkuk. As a solution to violence in Judah, God was going to bring the Babylonians and, you know, surely that just makes it worse. Because if Habakkuk had been in charge... He would have done it much more simply and neatly and tidily. Maybe have a reckoning in Judah, raise up a a godly ruler who will strike down the wicked and protect the innocent. That would be much more neat and tidy, wouldn't it? And much more timely. God's answer made no sense to him. But again, if you look at verse 5, that human surprise and confusion came as no surprise to God. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Even as he announces it, God acknowledges that his plan will be astounding for Habakkuk and hard to believe, because God's way of working is surprising to us. And that's something that we also need to learn, because if we were in charge of sorting out injustice in the world, what would we do? What would we do? Instant punishment for Vladimir Putin. Who else, though? Rapists, murderers, fraudsters, drunk drunk drivers, liars, selfish people, bad husbands. Where would you stop? And is that really such a good solution? Because what about forgiveness, restoration, redemption? How many of us here, as we think about our own pasts, are grateful that God's way of handling things is not quite so quick and cut and dried as we sometimes think would be a better idea? Often we are puzzled by God's apparent slowness, but it may be that there is a purpose in it, a wise and a loving purpose. After a long life, which 
included much suffering and injustice, the Apostle Peter could write in his second letter, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some understand slowness, but is patient with you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. There is a loving reason behind the delay in God's justice that we often find so puzzling. And there's something else as well here, because the New Testament links the words of Habakkuk not just to God's final justice, as we've seen. Habakkuk's cry for justice is also linked into the cross where God's punishment fell on his innocent son, the Lord Jesus. This comes in Habakkuk is quoted in in Acts 13. Paul has been explaining the message of the gospel, explaining about the cross where Jesus died, paying the price for our sins, his resurrection, and then he urges his hearers to respond, quoting Habakkuk. This is Acts 13, 40. He says, Beware, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells you. See, Paul knew as he preached the cross that it was going to be hard for people to understand. He knew that God's ways surprise us. And it's not just that we have to wait for justice that's the surprise, but that justice has fallen already on Jesus at the cross. Because there, as he died, God's righteous anger was poured out on his son the fierceness of the Babylonians that we get in this passage could serve as a picture of what was poured out onto Christ. If we were sorting out injustice, not the sort of thing we would have thought of. But this is where forgiveness comes from. Because the punishment that we deserved on the last day has already fallen on Christ as in our place on the cross, he took that wrath. That is how the Lord can offer forgiveness without compromising his just standards. His wisdom preserves his justice and his love. And so as well as as learning to accept God's sense of timing, we also need to accept that his ways surprise us. And that's not a reflection on him because he is the one who has managed to hold together perfect love and perfect justice. He has brought together inflexible, righteous punishment with patient and redemptive grace. God's ways may surprise us, but they are better. So these are the things that Habakkuk needed to learn as he faced up to the pain of what he saw around him. The Lord does feel the outrage of injustice, but his timing is not the same as ours, and his ways of working often surprise us. Let's pray. Lord, please help us to be honest about our own lives and the world around us. Help us not to minimize the injustice of a broken world. And help us to speak honestly to you about these things. But Lord, we also ask that you would help us to trust your timing and to trust your wisdom. Bring us to say, 
even in the hardest of circumstances, that we will quietly wait and we will rejoice in you. Amen.